Okay, please turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we finish up our study of the book of 1 Peter. I hope it has been profitable for you as it has been for me to go through this study. And we're going to be looking at, a, I've entitled the message tonight, Resisting Satan by the Great God of All Grace. Resisting Satan by the God of All Grace. We'll see that in our text in a little bit. Last week, we first looked at the conduct of elders in the church. This was a very uh, providential chapter in that it helps speak to us as elders, gives you a picture of what elders should be doing, uh, helps us to realize our responsibilities as elders. Uh, Peter identified himself as a fellow elder, even though he was an apostle and obviously looked up to in many ways. But he was a fellow elder. He exhorted these men not as someone superior to them, but as one who was their fellow. Uh, he exhorted them to shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers. He used that word overseers. And as we mentioned, the terms elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, or bishop, they're used by the apostles in the New Testament essentially as the same office, but they're, they do refer to different responsibilities within that office. That's why they use the different terms. Uh, for instance, we know that Jesus commanded Peter in, in John twenty one seventeen to feed my sheep. And thus, that's one of the primary roles of an elder or pastor is to feed God's sheep, uh, his people, with the word of God. Uh, and we are not only to feed them, but to teach them from choice portions of God's word, as we try to do here. And, but as a good shepherd, also, a pastor leads God's people uh, or points them to green pastures in the word of God where they can feed themselves, okay? So it's not a one person job here. It's as we feed you, you are to be encouraged, hopefully, and pointed to passages of scripture that you can go back into and feed yourself on spiritually by studying, meditating, memorizing, and applying it to your life. So that's the multiple uh, goal there is that as we feed, you get fed and you are hungry enough to keep going and studying more. Um, <clears throat> we also, as overseers of the flock, uh, watch out for false teachings or errors. That's our responsibility that they might, that might harm God's sheep. And we tend to the spiritual needs of the sheep as well. So that's kind of the role of elder, as, as uh, Peter described it. And if you recall, Peter spoke of oversight in both negative and a positive term. He contrasted the reluctance of uh, willing, reluctance, I'm sorry, contrast reluctance with willingness, uh, greed for money with willingness to serve, and proud ambition with exemplary behavior. He used these contrasts in a couple verses. And as we mentioned in discussions of these points, elders are not to be pushed, this is important, elders are not to be pushed into the office uh, by popular opinion or ecclesiastical control, rather it is to be a calling of God, a calling of God humbly acknowledged by that person, that, that call in their hearts, and also recognized then by the flock. That we're not perfect, but we are qualified as God has made us, as he has qualified us to fulfill that office. So that's very important. We keep that perspective when we look at elders. They're not, you know, giants in the faith necessarily. They're not uh, perfect in any way, but they're God's instruments who have been called, who have acknowledged the call in their heart, and whom the congregation has acknowledged, and with the goal of serving and feeding the flock. So that's important to keep that in mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. Also, the one fulfilling the role of elder, as Peter points out here, as we saw in the first half of this chapter, is not to do it for, for financial gain. In fact, as Paul pointed out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, when he listed the qualifications for elders, it's not to be done for financial gain, but rather it's to be done, uh, and that doesn't mean that elders have to take a vow of poverty, but their approach to the ministry should be that of service, not of financial uh, enhancement or enrichment. And we also noted Paul specifically gave teachings in 1 Corinthians 9.14, 
and 1 Timothy 5 regarding the importance of elders receiving adequate wages for their work. So there's a balance there. Obviously, elders are not to be greedy, not to do it for money, but they are to be compensated for their work. Okay. Lastly, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Paul warned against, or Peter warned against lording over those who are entrusted to the elders' care. Elders are not to be dictators or to think that they're more accepted than the members of the flock. For what? We're all one in Christ, aren't we? We're equal in Christ. So there's, the elders aren't over uh, the flock in, as far as acceptance in the Lord. Um, <clears throat> we are to be examples. The elders are to be examples to the flock in godliness, humility, service, love, and purity. All those things mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Pastors and elders must always remember in Peter's and Paul, make this out. And this is important. I want to, you know, kind of go over this. Pastors and elders are under shepherds. We're accountable to Christ and that the flock, the church, belongs to Christ, not to us. Okay? The church is not ours. We don't own it. We don't lord over it. It's Christ's church. It's his body. We're simply to be under shepherds to minister to the body and help carry out those things that he would have us to do to help the body be strong. Okay? But he does uh, mention here, as we go on, that uh, the flock is to be supportive of and accountable to those who are over them in the Lord. So that's important we keep that in mind, too. Um, Peter turned out then, the latter, just I mean, before we get to our new text today, he turned verses 5 to 7 to the flock's role in both submitting to the elders and to one another in humility. Okay? There's that sense of oneness again. We don't lord ourselves over each other. When we talked about spiritual gifts, if your gift happens to be more prominent or more noticeable, you don't lord it over someone. The goal of a gift is to edify and serve the flock. So uh, just as the, the elders are not to lord themselves over the flock, we are not to lord ourselves over other members either. We are to edify and encourage and humility serve one another. That's an important principle of the body of Christ that we're serving one another. And then he goes on here, and uh, I think it's primarily in uh, verse 5, uses the term uh, uh, is is age-related rather than submission to elders. It's the younger people are, are to submit to their elders in the faith, okay, in the flock in general. Uh, Peter goes on to say that all of you, all members of the flock, should submit to one another in the sense that we are not to think too highly of, of ourselves, as, we, as I just mentioned. And this language that he uses here suggests a type of clothing. Remember I mentioned it was a type of clothing that portrays a humble servant's attitude. The phrase clothed with humility literally means to gird oneself for labor. And that's what the slaves did back then. They put on a white apron or some sash that would identify them as a servant, as a slave, and they would be expected, of course, to serve. And we as God's people should put on humility, you might say the garment of humility uh, by God's grace, that we might serve one another, okay? That it should be evident in our life that we are serving one another. Peter goes on to give support to his exhortation by directly quoting uh, there in the latter part of, of the, the first uh, five verses. Uh, he quotes from Proverbs 3.34, which tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to those who walk in humility. And Peter's message is reinforced in verse 6 when he uses one of these if-then statements, which I tried to emphasize as we went through this study. Important to notice that as you're studying. Look for if-then statements. if you expect God to do this, then you should be doing this. Or if you expect to grow in grace, then this is how you should live. Look for statements like that. If you be lifted up, then humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's what Peter's exhorting us here. It is the hand that is mighty. It is the hand that is mighty to save those who put their trust in it. We also know the phrase, in due time. And again, look for key phrases. What do they mean? This should lead you into studying. This is what I meant when I said, 
elders are to feed the flock, but they're to encourage you to go into those green pastures of the word and study yourself. You see a phrase like that, in due time. Well, it means that God's in control. God's timing is not going to coincide with our timing, but it's always perfect timing. Okay? It's always perfect timing. When he says in due time this is going to happen, you know it's going to happen because he's ordained it. And we don't need to worry about when or in our particular timing, whether it fits our particular schedule. He's a God who cares for us, so much so, in fact, that he sent his son to die for us. And that's what we need to keep in mind. We may not understand the times and the seasons uh, which the Father is fixed by his own power, as Jesus said, but we can trust him to be in control of those seasons. We can trust him that he's got everything under control, and in due time, he will bring about the return of Christ. In due time, in, in personal affairs in our life, he will bring about his will as, he, as we patiently wait for him, as we submit to him, as we walk with him. He'll bring about his will for us. So let's move on now to this latter half of uh, chapter 5. And we're going to heed Peter's warnings here regarding the devil. And also he is confident, he's giving us some, some confident exhortation, again, to place ourselves in God's care. Okay, we're going to resist Satan, but we're going to place ourselves in God's care. So the first section we want to look at is the first two verses of this section, verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to call it resisting Satan via, resisting Satan via steadfast faith. So he's winding up his exhortations, and now he's going to challenge them to be on guard here. Okay, He's been talking to them about suffering and how to endure it and different things regarding submission, etc. Now he's going to say, okay, reality, you're going to face trouble, not just suffering, but Satan's going to be after you. Let's read verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Let's stop there. So you note the contrast here in responsibilities between verses 8 and 9 and verses 6 and 7. A strong confidence in God's love and care for us as his people does not mean, does not mean that we as believers may live recklessly or assume Satan is going to touch us because God's caring for us. We must be alert. We have to be alert to Satan's traps, his snares, uh, and we indeed need to cast all our cares and concerns at the Lord's feet and let him deal with them. But then we need to work in humble obedience to God's command as good soldiers and stay on the alert against the enemy's attack. We can't just kind of blissfully go on thinking, oh, Satan won't trouble me because God's in control. And God may, as we well know from the book of Job, God may let Satan trouble you, okay? He may let you get through some trials and things to test your faith. So we need to be on guard. Uh, This thought of trusting God yet being active in working out our faith is probably the most clearly set forth by Paul in a very uh, powerful passage in Philippians chapter 2. Let's turn there. Philippians chapter 2. I'm sure you're familiar with the passage once we start reading it. Philippians 2 and verses 12 and 13. We show here the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here we see the logic of scriptures that combines dependence upon God with personal responsibility. You are to work out your own salvation. You're to live out your life. You're to demonstrate that you are in Christ. But God is the one who keeps you. God is the one who has saved you. God is the one who will will and work his good pleasure in your life. Robert Layton, 
the Puritan put it this way regarding these two verses. Observe how these two are linked, and then realize, first, that there is no right to believe without diligence and watchfulness. Realize that slothful reliance on blind thoughts of mercy will be a person's undoing. That kind of faith is a dead faith and a deadly faith. Such people do not duly cast their care on God for their souls, for indeed, they have no such care. Second, it is not right, it is not right to be diligent without being believing. So, obviously, if you're going to say, I believe and I trust in God, well, then you need to be diligent in your life. Okay? And if you're saying, well, I'm diligent in my life, I'm doing these things, well, your, your, your diligence doesn't save you. Faith in Christ saves you. God saves you. So you need to keep that balance in mind. God has saved you. He will keep you. But he requires you to live a life that's pleasing to him. And, of course, we see the example in the Old Testament of how he blessed Israel and brought them out of Egypt and, and gave them all, all kinds of wonderful laws to live by and a land to live in. And if they'd obeyed, they would have done fine. But they didn't, did they? They fell astray. They went off. They ignored God. They worshipped idols. And they ended up getting God's judgment. So we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard against, of course, our own weak flesh, but also against Satan who will do whatever he can to draw us down and to help us to uh, go away from the faith if, if he can do it. And notice in our text here, looking at verse 8. Um, oops, going back to my text. Here we go. Verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, Be sober, be vigilant. This is the third time that Peter has used this in his epistle, to warn the saints and us to be sober, or really self-controlled is probably a better translation of the Greek, to be self-controlled, as some translations have it. Uh, We see that also in 1 Peter 1.13 and chapter 4, verse 7. To be self-controlled is the ability to look at a reality with a clear mind and rule your passions. Okay? To look at reality with a clear mind and to rule your passions. Not let re- the reality of your circumstances or your passions drive you to do things that, aren't co- that are contrary to God's will. But to have that rule over your passions. And it not only means concerning uh, consuming things like food and drink. Obviously we think of that as something you know, we can lose control on. But in all things that concern the flesh, we need to be under control. We need to have self-control. Self-control involves self-discipline. Which, from a believer's point of view, means, by God's grace, bringing ourselves into conformity to God's word. Okay? That's self-discipline. As we discipline our lives to conform it to the word of God. Not putting God's, God's word on the back burner and living our life and sure hope it works out. Or using our own standards of righteousness rather than the righteousness that God points to here in his word. So we need to be on guard. We need to be studying. We need to be self-controlled by being, spending time in God's word. It's a daily, when you think of it, if not an hourly, Discipline that involves a heartfelt commitment to spend time with God, spend time in his word, that we might have the tools to resist sin and to live unto godliness. And Peter combines self-control here with, or sobriety with vigilance or alertness would be another way of saying it in this verse. While self-control deals with internal issues, okay, with controlling our passions, etc., one must be alert or vigilant to guard against outside forces, and in this case Satan, who is out to destroy us. Uh, turn with me to First um, Thessalonians chapter five and verses six to eight. First Thessalonians five six to eight. Here's the admonition of the apostle Paul. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Again, be on alert. 
But let us watch and be sober. There's that word, sober, or self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, self-controlled, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there's that word that Peter and Paul like to use, self-control. Be self-controlled. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Don't be those who sleep. Let us watch, okay? Let us be sober. Let us be careful. Peter is the only one in all of Scripture, by the way, that portrays Satan as a roaring lion, as we read there in our text. Okay, He's the only one that uses that term. But his simile is an accurate one uh, completely, I think, when you think about it. Though he was defeated at the cross by Christ, as we know, and severely wounded when our Savior rose from the dead victorious, yet he, Satan, in his death throes, will try his best to drag as many as he can down with him, and at the very least, try and wound and blemish the church, the bride of Christ. And we see that, and you can see it in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. We won't go there. The Greek word for the devil is, as you may know, diabolos, which means false accuser or slanderer. And this fits Satan to the T, doesn't it? He is a false accuser or slanderer. In fact, turn to the classic passage in the Old Testament, which portrays him in this role as an accuser. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Is a picture here of Satan in his role as an accuser and being rebuked by God, by the way. <clears throat> going to be going through a lot of scriptures today, so hang in there with me, and this will get your thumbs working and your scriptures um, familiar to Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, <clears throat> vision of the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, or that same figure there, Diabolus, standing in his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by a beautiful picture of not only God rebuking Satan and defending his, his saint, but also a picture of what? Of the righteousness of God being clothing this, this saint here, his, his uh, unrighteousness being taken off, okay, his sins being removed, and he's clothed in the righteousness of God. So a beautiful picture of, of that, of our salvation, our justification, but also a picture of Satan being rebuked by God, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. If we as believers, if we as believers had to face him on our own, we would be helpless to defeat him. But God himself is our protector and holds Satan on a leash that limits what he can do to God's elect, as we, as we noted uh, in seeing the book of Job. Our job, though, is to be sober, okay, be alert, or to be self-controlled and, uh, for his attacks, and depending, depending on the grace of God to help us defeat him, putting on the gospel armor, to protect us against Satan's darts. Also, Jesus taught us to pray for help against Satan in his model prayer. And there in Matthew chapter 6, 13, he says, and, and deliver us from the evil one. That's part of the Lord's prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. That's a prayer we can bring up to God. Lord, deliver me from the evil one. When you're being attacked, when you feel Satan is, is dragging you down, when there's uh, temptations assaulting you from all sides, lift up the prayer to God. Father, deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from his influences. Let's not be shy to use that prayer when we're faced with those kind of attacks. Satan is a fearful foe. 
Uh, and we know his goal is to drag us down as Christians, drag us out of fellowship with Christ. So not only do we need to stand alert against his attack, watching out for him, but we need to stand strong and resist him. Okay? We don't back up. We stand strong and we resist him. We say, no. We, we say, no, I'm not going to give to that. No, in the Lord's name, go, be gone, because we have the power through Christ to defeat him. To resist him means to stand against something. Okay, we need to stand against, not yield ground. How do we resist someone as powerful as Satan? Well, we just said, not by chanting special words, okay, not by coming up with some magic formula, but by remaining firmly anchored, firmly anchored in our Christian faith. James chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. There's the key. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How is he going to flee from you? When you resist, when you submit to God, you resist him, he will flee from you. Okay? We on our own cannot hope to defeat Satan, but God is his master. And if we put ourselves in, under God's protection, firmly resting on his promises, which Satan cannot overturn, we will be able to resist our enemy. As one commentator said, the Apostle Peter does not say you are to stand firm because of your own resolution, but because you are standing firm in the faith, in Christ. God's power through faith becomes ours for it is contained in the word of promise. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory, victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Our faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ and in his work on our behalf. <clears throat> now, Peter goes on here to say in the latter half of verse 9 that we're not alone in our trials, our sufferings, or satanic attacks. In fact, that is one of Satan's tricks, really, to make us feel alone and weak, that God has abandoned us, that he doesn't care anymore. But the promise in God's word is that he will never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Our trials and temptations are not unique. Okay? We look back through history, look at what's happening even today in places like Ukraine and others, uh, our trials are not unique. Uh, our, our challenges aren't unique. And God's grace can help us to overcome as we submit to him and resist the devil. You have to have that submission and then resisting. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand, but God is faithful. Now, it's important that we're faithful in trusting him, but more important than that is God is faithful. He will protect us. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear. There's a prayer that you could offer up to God when you're faced with temptation. Lord, you promised you are faithful. You will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able, but will make a way of escape. Please make a way of escape. You can use that as a prayer when you're faced with struggles and temptations. Be steadfast in your faith. Trust in God with all your fellow saints that he will deliver us and know that he will work all things together for our good and he will eventually crush Satan under our feet at last, as we're told in the scripture. So that's an encouragement to us. Even when we're faced with trials, when Satan is buffeting us, we know that he is ultimately defeated and that we have victory over him in Christ. Therefore, we can rest in that. <clears throat> okay, now moving on from that, we'll look at the next couple verses in our text. And we'll look at it under the title of Yielded to the God of All Grace. I love that phrase. He is the God of All Grace. Yielded to the God of All Grace, verses 10 and 11. So in contrast to our strong resistance of Satan, Peter, in the form of a prayer now, closes his spirit-inspired teaching by exhorting the saints to yield to the God of All Grace. Let's read verses 10 and verses 11. <clears throat> 
But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Excuse me, what a beautiful, uplifting benediction this is. Man, we should use that sometime, right? Beautiful benediction. It's simple, yet it's rich in truth and meaning. It's also an example to us who preach the word that Peter concludes his teaching here and doctrine with prayer. Okay, he concludes it with a prayer. John Calvin put it this way, For doctrine is in vain poured forth into the air unless God works by his Spirit. And this example ought to be followed by all the ministers of God, that is, to pray that he may give success to their labors, for otherwise they affect nothing either by planting or by watering. We open and close our services in prayer, not merely out of formality, because we recognize our dependence upon the grace of God and the Spirit of God to effectively work in us what's pleasing in His sight. That's why we have prayer during our services. We're pleading to God to meet with us. We're pleading to God to apply the truths that we've heard to our lives. We're pleading for God to be with us as we go our separate ways. That's what the benediction does in that sense, asking God to bless us as we go and to take what we've learned with us. So prayer is an important part of our services. It should be an important part of our life, our personal devotions, seeking the Lord's face, asking him when we're facing, whether it's physical suffering or satanic attacks, pleading for him, pleading his word, saying, Lord, you promised to protect me. You promised to be with me. Give me grace to endure or give me victory over this particular issue. We need to have that attitude of readily going to prayer. Okay? Not just depending on a Wednesday night prayer meeting or an occasional prayer of thank you, Lord, for our food, but spending time in prayer, seeking his face, depending on him, looking to him to guide and direct our thoughts. <clears throat> the God of all grace, the God of all grace, every blessing, every mercy to be attributed to God. He is the fountain, the, uh, the springhead of all divine favor that can never be drained dry. Robert Layton, uh, the Puritan, said this of God's grace. The God of all grace is the God of imputed grace, of infused and increased grace, of furnished and assisting grace. The work of salvation is all grace from beginning to end. It is founded on free grace in the counsel of God and is brought about by his own hand. Grace, as someone once said, is getting what we do not deserve. Our God is said to be a God full of compassion. Full of compassion. That's where his grace comes from. In Romans 15.5, Paul calls him the God of patience. In Romans 15.13, he is called the God of hope. In the 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul refers to him as the God of all comfort. Finally, in Hebrews 13.20, he is called the God of peace. What are all these descriptive titles but a list of the manifestation of his grace to us? He's a God of all grace. Turn with me back in your Old Testament to the book of Micah. Book of Micah. Micah is just before Nahum. You're looking for a quick ad, and right after Jonah. Okay, book of Micah. We'll look at the last couple of verses here in the book of Micah, verse chapter seven, verses eighteen and nineteen. <clears throat> Who is a god like you? This is a great prayer, and when you think about it, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's the God we have. A God who doesn't bear grudges, a God who forgives us in Christ and keeps us in Christ, 
and throws all our iniquities in the depths of the sea. A God who doesn't retain his anger forever. A God who pardons iniquity. He is the God of all grace. Looking back in our text at verse 10, Peter reminds us that this God of all grace called us to his eternal glory in Christ. He called us. We didn't call him. He called us. It speaks of our election in Christ. For God's call is not merely an open invitation that someone can accept or reject. Indeed, if you recall from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, as he who called us is holy, so we also are to be holy in all our conduct. So he calls us to be holy as he is. <clears throat> Spurgeon said this, Grace is the mother and nurse of holiness and not the apologist of sin. I'll read that again. I love that, that verse from, uh, from Spurgeon. Grace is the mother and nurse of holiness and not the apologist of sin. Those called by God are chosen by God to be holy vessels that might be filled with his grace to live for his glory. Yes, we are called to his eternal glory, meaning we are effectively called to a sure hope. We're not called to a maybe, an if possible. We're called to his eternal glory, a sure hope. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't call us to kind of hopefully, maybe we'll negotiate and work something out. No, he called us for the obtaining of our glory in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, and he called us in this present age, Romans 8.30, that we might inherit the promise of eternal life, 1 John 2.25. So he called us before the world began, he called us in this age, and he called us that we might inherit that eternal promise. A beautiful picture of God's total control over our lives as his people. As we've been stating, one of the main themes of this particular epistle is suffering and how we as Christians should face it and live in it, live in the light of it. Uh, our greatest comfort when we are enduring any kind of suffering, but especially for the sake of the gospel, is that God is totally aware of it. He's totally aware of it. He can sustain us or deliver us. And if we keep an eternal perspective, we can overcome it. Okay? That's up to God. He can sustain us through it. He can deliver us out of it. Or even if we do endure suffering, we can look beyond it to the eternal hope that is ours in Christ. The key word in this phrase here in verse 10 is a while. Notice that. Let me read verse 10 again to you. But may the God of all grace, who <clears throat> called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. A while. The Greek word here is oligos, and it means puny or briefly, short, minute, very small, okay? After you suffered a while, very small while. In, in stark contrast, of course, we have the opportunity to enjoy eternal bless in the presence of God because of his amazing grace. So suffering here on earth for a little while is nothing, nothing compared to the eternal bliss we will have in Christ. Paul expressed it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I, obviously, let's be honest, when you're in the midst of suffering, especially if it's very severe suffering, perhaps even torture or death at the hands of those who hate you, it may seem like it's lasting forever and you're never going to get out of it. But when you think of it in terms of your eternal bliss in Christ, you can endure it and you can know that it's but for a moment in time, whereas you'll spend eternity with God. And that can carry you through that trial. Uh, as, as you would otherwise not be able to face it. 
not knowing what's going to happen to you in the end. But if you're in Christ, you have that peace that passes all understanding. And, and, and it's not to say, obviously, that suffering, be it physical, mental, financial, or anything, is not difficult. You know, it is difficult at, at the present time to endure. Yet it is not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. And as we hold on by faith to that hope, that hope, we can, by God's grace, endure until the very end. Also, we have mentioned several times here, sometimes suffering is a result of God's chasing, isn't it? His chastening hand upon us as he seeks to purify us as the bride of Christ. Hebrews 12, 11, no, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised by it. So trials sometimes are God's means by pur- of purifying us, of sanctifying us, of making us more holy being less dependent upon the world and more dependent upon him. Hard, obviously, as we know, it can be tough to face that trial. But if it's for our good, we need to endure and we need to learn from it to lay aside that thing that's keeping us from living for Christ and to focus on him that we might be able to endure. So <clears throat> Peter tells us here that the God of all grace uses suffering to sanctify us. Okay, that should be obvious. He does this by perfecting us. In the Greek, that word means, the word is more of a restore or repair us. In some cases, completely, thoroughly restore us to what is right, what is true. If we're honest with ourselves, God has much work to do. He has much work to do uh, and to conform us to the image of his son. Think about it in that way. We might think, well, we've moved along pretty good in in Christian life, and we've done this, that, and the other thing. We're faithful to church, and we, we study our Bible. But think about being conformed to the image of Christ. How close are you? Are you really that close? Think how much sanctifying has to be done to bring you more into the image of Christ, to be more like him in all things. God's working in us, sometimes via suffering, sometimes through other means, but he's going to remove our remaining corruptions and help us progress in sanctification. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and verses 20 and 21. Again, a great benediction here of sorts, but it speaks to our our willingness to accept God's challenges and, and discipline when necessary. Hebrews thirteen twenty. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that is well ple- what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May he work in us his will working in that which is well-pleasing in his sight. It might not be well-pleasing in our sight. We may think, whew, this is painful, this is difficult. But if he's sanctifying us, if he's purifying us, he's, making, uh, he's working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, conforming us more to the image of his son, and that's what we should submit to. Looking at our text here, the three remaining Greek verbs, which are translated to establish, strengthen, and settle you, also speak of God's restoring work in the believer's life. God is working in our lives to produce strength of character. He establishes or confirms us in our faith that we would not waver. Paul points to this in Colossians 2 verse 7. He says, rooted and built up in him, meaning Christ, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding with it in thanksgiving. To be rooted in something means you're not just on the surface, you're deep into it, okay? You're rooted in Christ. That shows a, a real conformity. Uh, that shows your nourishment is coming from those roots. You're rooted in Christ, and that's where your spiritual life is, is in Christ. So we want to be rooted in him. That should be the case. When we're weak, God is our refuge and strength, Psalm 46, verse 1, and a very pleasant help in trouble. 
present help in trouble. The verb settle you, as used here by Peter in our text, literally means to lay a foundation. And of course, our sure foundation is in Christ, the chief cornerstone, as we're told in Ephesians 2.20. When we think of all that God has done for us in Christ, what he is presently doing for us in Christ, and will do for us for all eternity, we cannot but echo Peter's doxology of praise here in verse 11. He deserves all the glory and the praise and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In fact, this verse is almost a repeat of 1 Peter 4.11, if you want to look that up later. Both Peter and Paul are found to burst forth into praise, praise their God and Redeemer when they contemplate his grace and his mercy and the eternal hope that we have in him. And we should be no different, beloved. We should be no different. Yes, they were apostles and they're anointed by the Spirit to proclaim these things, but they're there to remind us that we too might rejoice, even in the midst of suffering, knowing what we have in Christ, knowing our hope is in him. Revelation 5.13, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such are as in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That should be on our hearts. That as they are doing in heaven, we now should be blessing and praising and honoring, glorifying God, even in the midst of the challenges we face. Okay, let's finish up here with uh, the latter part of our chapter, and that is verses 12 through 14. We'll, we'll just call it under the title, The Farewell and the Greetings. The Farewell and the Greetings. <clears throat> we'll not spend a lot of time here, but there's some noteworthy elements to these remaining verses in the epistle. Let's read those last few verses there, beginning at verse 12. By Silvanius, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Silvanus, or Silas, as some translations have it, was probably the same one who traveled with Paul and is mentioned in such passages as 2 Corinthians 1.19, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, and 2 Thessalonians 1.1. He was a prophet, we're told, in, in Acts 15.32. He was also a Roman citizen, we're told, in Acts 16.37. And it would appear from Peter's words here that he was Peter's secretary, or what we call an amanuensis, okay, who actually wrote for Peter. Peter may be dictating it, but he's writing it down. Uh, and he wrote it down in these flowing Greek words, which Peter probably wouldn't have been as adept at, that someone like an educated person like Silas would have been. As Tertius was to Paul in Romans 16.22, so Silas is to Peter in this case. Peter calls him a faithful brother. Thus, encouraging the recipients of the letter to depend upon Silas. They could depend upon him to continue the, the message that was going on. Peter considers his epistle a brief one, Perhaps that he hoped to write them further on, or as some commentators believe, he had authorized Silas to expand on his thoughts and explain some of Peter's exhortations further, to exegete the text, so to speak. Peter's purpose for writing the letter is set forth in the latter part of verse 12. Let's look again at verse 12. <clears throat> Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. As, as Simon Kistemacher says, he confirms that God's grace preached by the apostles and accepted in faith by the believers is genuine. It's not fake. It's not made up. It's genuine. God's grace is genuine. They can trust this message they have heard, and they can stand upon it. And remember, these saints are enduring severe suffering, and thus Peter wants to assure them that God's grace is indeed true and is sufficient for them. They don't need to fear. Paul gives a similar encouraging words in 1 Corinthians 15.1 when he says, Moreover, brethren, 
I declare unto you the gospel which I have preached to you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. We have no other gospel, beloved. No other gospel but that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anything else, as Paul said in Galatians 1.9, is accursed. Our standing in Christ is secure, and he will never leave us or forsake us. We can depend upon the grace of God in this gospel. There seems to be a slight controversy, by the way, over what Peter says in verse 13. Who and where is the church or she that is in Babylon? That's kind of a mysterious text at this time. Some speculate that Peter is referring to his wife. For in 1 Corinthians 9.5, he tells us that she accompanied him on his journeys. Uh, that's pretty unlikely, for uh, it refers to she as elect together with you. And if it had been his wife, he probably would have said something like, she who was in Babylon with me. Okay? Most likely, he's referring to the church, the body of believers in Babylon. So where's Babylon? What Babylon is this? The question is, do we take the name Babylon for a literal place? or as some code word for another location? Well, commentators offer three possible answers. Babylon is the name of a fortress in Egypt at this time in history. Number two, Babylon, the former wonder of the world in Mesopotamia on the banks of the Euphrates is what he's talking about. And number three, Babylon is a cryptic name for Rome, as John used it in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Most scholars dismiss the first one as highly unlikely that he was talking about his wife. Some would dismiss the second explanation because there's no proof that Peter ever traveled east into Mesopotamia to establish a church in the ancient city. However, as Gordon Clark points out in his commentary, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And at that time in history, there still were a number of Jews living in Babylon. We see that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter may have traveled there to reach them with the gospel. Also, this Peter epistle is not apocalyptic, okay? He's not talking about end times. Um, he's referring to immediate circumstances they're in. So he's rather straightforward in his teaching. So it would be no reason to suddenly start using cryptic words here in chapter 5, verse 13 at the end of the epistle. At least that's what some people believe. As one commentator pointed out, there's no evidence that Babylon was used figuratively to refer to Rome before John wrote Revelation in AD 95, and Peter was long dead by then. And in any case, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because what's important is that Peter, what Peter wrote is what God wanted him to write, regardless of where he was. Okay, that's not the important part, whether he was in Babylon, the city of Babylon, or whether he was in some mysterious place they called Babylon. The important thing is that Peter was anointed by God to write this. As to the reference to Mark or Marcus, it is probably John Mark that he's referring to here in this case, and refers to him as his son, meaning his son in the faith, just as Paul does with Timothy. Tradition has it that Mark wrote his gospel with the help of Peter. Early church fathers refer to Mark as Peter's interpreter. And finally, the great apostle closes his letter with these tender words, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace be unto all that are in Christ Jesus. As one author said, this kiss in the ancient world was both a friendly sign of greeting and an emotional token of farewell. You might recall that in the text where Paul is uh, there uh, meeting with the elders in Ephesus there on the shore. And he tells them he's not going to come back. They probably won't see his face anymore. And after he was done, they all wept and fell on him, kissed his cheek, and gave him this affectionate, knowing that he he was going to be gone. They probably would never see him again. So that's the picture here in the situation. Paul, similarly in his epistles, exhorts Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. At that time, it was a customary part of Christian worship service, and it symbolized the love 
we are to have towards one another in Christ. But remember, the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Peter's closing benediction of peace is, is pretty similar to Paul's. It reminds us, as Simon Kistemacher states, in Jesus Christ we have peace with God and with one another. Turn with me one last time to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 33 as we close out. <clears throat> These are the words of our Savior, which Peter is going to confirm, you might say, with these latter verses in the chapter. John chapter 16 and verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So Peter's confirming these words, these comforting words of our Savior. Let us be of good cheer. Yea, let us rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory at the hope that is ours in Christ. And, if necessary, Endure all suffering for his name's sake, knowing that it is but for a while, a little while, and our rest in him is forever and ever. Let's pray.